Hello, everyone, and welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we travel down the dark and winding roads of the Delmarva Peninsula. If you're unfamiliar with Delmarva, it encompasses all of Delaware, Maryland to the west of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Thank you all for taking some time out today to listen to the stories of people who've lived on Delmarva and in today's cases who have been the victims of violent and senseless crimes. Cases that reach back decades, but hopefully with advances in technology and forensics, maybe one day these cases will be solved. We will be reviewing four cold cases. Unfortunately, though, three of them have very little information. But the fourth shows that with perseverance, with determination, that even after four decades, at least some answers can still be found. Before I get into these cases, I do just want to let everybody know that in this episode, as well as most episodes, there will be discussion of topics or events that may be disturbing to some listeners. As the cases that I cover usually involve crimes and natural or man-made disasters, there are in most episodes at least the discussion of death. In some instances as well, there could be discussion of domestic violence, assault, or suicide. So if you feel like this is not exactly the right fit um, for a podcast, I completely understand, but I just want to make sure everybody is aware of some of the topics that we may cover. With that being said, let's get into today's stories. I want to start with the case that we have the most information about. This will take us back to 1977 in the little town of Odessa, Delaware. Now, when I say Odessa is small, I mean it is very, very small. And it's also very historic, though. Odessa um, actually got its name from the Ukrainian city, Odessa. It was originally known as Cantwell's Bridge, but it made the name change in the 19th century. In the 2000 census, there were 286 people with 119 households that lived in Odessa, with the 2010 census now bringing the population up to 364. I have actually gotten a little lost on the back roads behind Odessa or around Odessa before, and I can say even as of just a few years ago, if you are in an area that's not right up against the highway, it can be very, very dark. So imagine at that time in 1977 that you're a teenage boy trying to get home. You're on your bicycle and you're riding down one of the dark country roads as dusk has approached. 
you go by a ditch and you look down and you probably question what you think you see, but you have to go back and look. You have to make sure that you didn't see what you just think you saw. As the young man looked further at the ditch, he realized that yes, he had found the body of a woman. The woman had been found naked and she was actually already decomposing. So this would make identification and of course the whole investigation a little more difficult. With the body, there was no form of identification, nothing that they could use to try to determine who this woman was. And this being 1977, they really had limited tools at their disposal to try to find out who she was. They'd had no luck with being able to get fingerprints to run, also using a dental database or looking through dental records of missing people, they weren't able to find out anything either. What most police departments would need to do at that time if they found an unidentified person was first try to identify through a picture or appearance if that was possible. But as the body had been found in a decomposing state, it's not really clear exactly how realistic getting a good composite sketch or picture of her may have been. There were actually no pictures that I could find um, as far as, say, contemporary pictures, whether they be sketches or anything taken to try to identify her. So even though no article said the extent of the decomposition, it sounds like it may have been pretty far advanced by that point. Really, the most important thing that they had, if it was available, was a missing persons report. They would need to go through any of the missing person reports from the area and sometimes even needing to extend to other parts of the country to try to match up this person's information to another person who was missing at that time. And using everything that they had, they were unable to find a match. The detectives, though, did not give up. Fast forward to the year 2008. Detectives are still revisiting the case and trying to find any way that they can identify this Jane Doe who has been unidentified for over 30 years at that point. At that time, they submit information to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. That's called NamUs, or abbreviated as NamUs. And that's a site that I actually use to try to look at information to, you know, find some cold cases to bring, you know, into the light again. Part of the information provided in that profile would be not only information about how and when she was discovered, as well as any um, possible identifying features, it also included a DNA profile. That profile was also entered into CODIS, which is the Combined DNA Index System. Many of us, if we listen regularly to true crime 
shows or even, you know, procedural dramas about crime may hear this brought up a lot, um, that fingerprints are, or I'm sorry, DNA is run through CODIS, but no hits. Another decade would pass before any other movement happened on this case. In February of 2017, the Newcastle County Police, who are the ones in charge of the investigation, found out about Parabon Nanolabs. And Parabon has really, really taken leaps and bounds in in the advances that have come along um, regarding DNA and you know other forensic technologies. One of their specialties is called phenotyping. And what that is, is they look at the actual DNA or genetic makeup of an individual and try to determine what physical traits this person may have had. For example, I have submitted my information to 23andMe, and when I got my profile back, they you know, said that they thought my hair was dark. Yes, it was. Um, they thought, given my background, I probably had a fairer complexion. That's true. So those are just some of the things they look at. And in doing so, they try to come up with a sketch or a picture of what this person may have looked like and can even try to, you know, given the approximate age, if that is known, make a composite of what that person would have looked like at that age or even age progress those pictures so we can see what the person may have looked at looked like at different points in their lives. So Parabon did start to look at this and try to create a digital image, which I will um, have linked in the description. That's where all my sources will be linked. And in one of the articles, there is um, a picture and I have to say, while at a glance it may not look exactly the same, the hairstyle was very, very different than what some of the pictures of the person who was later identified, you know, had. So that is something, too, that can make a big difference. But two years after that, the Newcastle County Police also happened to be attending a seminar where a man named Steven Smugoreski was speaking. He's a genealogist, and he is from a police department in Maryland, the Montgomery County Police. So the Newcastle police officers talked to Mr. Smugoreski after the seminar, and he said that he would help. He started to research the ancestry um, of the unidentified person using the DNA that they had available. Um, using resources at his disposal, you know, genealogist, I admit, you know, I've, I've actually dated someone who was a genealogist and I just still, I just find it amazing that a genealogist can look at some pieces of information and be able to build family trees from that, especially going back generations where, you know, record keeping may or may not have been quite as detailed as it is today. But it's given all of these different resources that the Newcastle County Police reached out to that after more than 40 years, 
they were able to come up with an identity. That identity was Marie Heiser of Pennsylvania. One day prior to the discovery of the remains, Marie Heiser's children came home from school and their father told them that their mother had left, that she had just packed her things and left and that was it. Now, of course, any child would be devastated to hear that, I'm sure. And they had questions, but their father just said she had left. He didn't know anymore. Now, at the time, William Heiser Jr., her son, had been at boarding school, and I was not able to find anything that mentioned whether or not the daughter, Sharon, had attended boarding school as well but we also do not have the exact date or ages of the children when she left. You know, of course, it's not something, you know, an exact date that they probably would have kept record of. It just has to be sometime before June of 1977 that their father had told them this. They did have some questions as well as they did notice that some of her items were still there in the house, but just as a little bit of speculation, I'm I'm wondering if they just thought maybe she'd come back for them or, you know, maybe she just wanted to travel light and only take what was absolutely necessary. But as time went by, they never heard from her. And I also wonder if not hearing from her actually reinforced the fact that she had gone, but instead of realizing she was gone not of her own accord, they thought that she had left voluntarily. However, something did occur that makes me question whether or not even if she had been alive, would she have been able to contact her children? So who was Marie Heiser? Unfortunately, there really was not a lot of information that I could find to say who she truly was. The articles pretty much rehashed the same information over and over again. She was what most would consider a homemaker, though she did have a part-time job working at a country club in Pennsylvania. She was active in her community, and that's pretty much it. The only other addition is that her son did say that she would take them to the Jersey Shore and they would walk along the boardwalk and she said that she was a good person and you know he had these memories he remembered you know these fond memories he had of his mother so kind of going back to where um, where we were originally in Odessa when I look at it on a map it does fall almost equally between three other states, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. So that would be almost an optimum or prime place to try to hide a crime because if the person cannot be identified, they could theoretically be from any of, these, any of the states and it not be really a very far distance to drive. But you know, this is really where the information on Marie Heiser stops. 
Now, before I get into the next aspect, I do just want to say that we have to remember in every case that everybody is innocent until proven guilty, though I'm sure we each have individual thoughts and suspicions and even using you know, percentages when it comes to crime, there is definitely someone who at the least would be a very important witness and at the most be the prime suspect. And that would be your husband, William Heiser Sr. Now, William Heiser Sr. was a former member of the Philadelphia Highway Patrol. His exact years of service in the police department are unknown, but he did work there sometime in the 1950s into the 1960s. He was part of a troupe as well that would perform at shows um, on motorbikes. These were considered thrill shows. And at one of these particular um, rehearsals for these shows, he was injured and was unable to continue working for the police department. Now, the reason or one of his actions that does make me question whether or not Marie would have been able to contact her children would have been that he moved. Before the end of the year, before the end of 1977, he had sold the home and moved to Florida. So he had always told his children that, she, that he did not know where she had gone. However, if he moves, there's no way that she could have you know, tried to find them possibly. You know, she couldn't Google their name or an address to try to find out where they were. There wasn't social media. So I have to question why he would move so quickly after she had left. But throughout the years, he always told his children that, you know, that he had no idea where she was. We also do have to question why he never reported her missing. At least that's a question that a lot of people have about this case. Now, personally, I wouldn't look at everything from you know, every different angle. So without knowing what the conversation was when Marie left, if that did in fact occur, we don't know if she said, you know, I will not try to contact you for months or I need my own space and I'll try to contact you when I'm ready. And if that was the case, then he may not have had a, you know, really a reason to think that he should report her missing. However, being a police officer or former police officer, he should have known also that it was important to keep, um, you know, to really keep um, authorities abreast of the situation if she was in fact gone. But based on percentages, you know, most likely she would have been killed by somebody that she knew and in many, if not most cases, that would be the significant other. Now, there's no information ever that there were reports of domestic violence. Mr. Heiser Jr. says his dad was great. You know, he couldn't see him ever hurting anybody. So we weren't really there to see the family dynamic. 
But this does bring up questions of what would happen to someone who was a victim of domestic abuse if the spouse was in law enforcement. Now, looking at it from the 1970s perspective, unfortunately, domestic violence was not taken as seriously as we know it is now. If domestic violence had been part of their relationship, if Marie did reach out to law enforcement, she would not only have had to deal with the attitudes about domestic abuse or violence at that time, but also wonder if one of her husband's friends from you know his time on the force would be someone who responded. And, and if it was someone that he knew, would that person even believe that their friend was capable of doing something violent? Now, again, there were never any accusations that were found um, regarding this, but it is something that does come up if a spouse goes missing and the history is reviewed. It's also a position to be in where, you know, if there are any ways um, to get away from an abusive relationship, such as going to a shelter or reaching out to resources, someone who has been part of the law enforcement community would have some of that information. One of the articles that I read did give information about what they call a unique vulnerability. Um, And it does, you know, give some of the, I guess you would say the point of views from someone who is a victim of domestic violence, you know, when that other significant other is someone in law enforcement. Now, the article itself only mentions when the husband is in law enforcement, which, you know, is something too that has changed over time. Um, It can be the husband or wife or significant other that is in law enforcement. It doesn't necessarily just have to be the husband. It it could be either partner who is part of a relationship. Um, But, you know, the article did at least give some of the perspectives and obstacles that the victim of domestic violence would have to overcome if the significant other was in law enforcement. So what happens from here? Do the investigators still keep investigating, even though you know, a primary witness and possibly the prime suspect is no longer living? They do want to continue to investigate. They are actively looking for more information. And if anybody lived in that area or knew Mr. or Mrs. Heiser, they are asked um, if they have any information that they believe may be pertinent to this case to contact the Newcastle County Police Department, um, specifically Detective Jeffrey Sendek at 302-395-8110. So again, they are looking for any information regarding this case because you know, they do want to look at all angles. They're not just going to give up trying to find answers about what happened to Marie because after these decades, you know, nobody has paid for what they did. We don't know if her husband was involved. For all we know, it could have been another partner if she had met someone else. And I'm not saying this is the case. I'm just saying that We have to look at all possibilities. If she was involved with someone else, 
that they possibly, you know, could they have become upset with her or enraged and killed her? Could she have been in the process of leaving and hitchhiked or was picked up by somebody who meant her harm? We just don't know these answers, partially due to not knowing exactly the time frame between when she went missing and when she was found or when she was killed. So there's so many answers that still need to come about in this case. But at least after 44 years, her children now have an answer that she didn't just leave them. They can start working on trying to erase some of that pain, thinking that their mother had abandoned them, and try to move forward with the knowledge that she still did love them. Now, Mr. Heiser Jr., he actually became a member of law enforcement himself. He worked in Florida, where he's now a retired sheriff's deputy, but he still continues to believe his father had nothing to do with his mother's um, disappearance or death. And what Mr. Heiser Jr. said of, you know, at least finding these answers about the case is that he, quote, appreciated all of the hard work by law enforcement in identifying his mother as it gave his family some sense of closure regarding her disappearance. Now, this case itself, I had actually um, been looking for different cases when I first decided to start this podcast. I you know, didn't just want to start with an idea of a couple cases to cover. I wanted to make sure I at least had a handful that I could be working on and trying to gather information. So at the beginning, um, you know, I had some very firm ideas of what I wanted to cover but I'd also looked into cold cases, and this was one that I had seen. At the time, she was still unidentified. And about a month or so later, I you know, looked up the bit of information that I did have. And when I looked it up, it said she had been identified, which of course then gave me some information to start looking for more articles. I did hold off on doing an episode about her case because I wanted to see if any new information would come about, but it's really been, you know, like I said, the same information over and over again um, through each article that I've read. But if you actually still go to the Newcastle County um, Police Department um, cold case page, it actually, at least on the primary page, has... Marie Heiser listed as still unidentified. It just has the picture, um, you know, the, um, the drawing of what she may have looked like on the page. But I also did look at another case, which unfortunately, again, there's not a ton of information um, about, but a lot of time has passed, October 1979. But while it's been decades, there's still always the chance of possibly more information coming to light, as we've seen in Marie Heiser's case. Going to another part of Newcastle, Delaware, in Garfield Park in Newcastle, Grace Harmon lived there in October of 1979. 
She was 52 years old when police were sent to her um, to her home on October 3rd. She had been killed and she died of blunt force trauma and was pronounced dead at the scene. Unfortunately, that's about all we have regarding her case. Literally, that's it. She lived you know, on Donhaven Drive in Garfield Park, but there's no other information or leads that, that are available about her case. With so much time that has passed, there's a few different obstacles. One is, given that it's been well over 40 years, could the person who killed her still be alive themselves or have they passed away? Are any potential witnesses still alive? So on the reverse side of that, it could have also changed perspectives of potential witnesses. As time has gone by, would any allegiance or sense of loyalty that they had to someone possibly have dissipated? For example, if they were friends with a person and kept their secret, not only about Ms. Harmon's case, but any case, with that passage of time, did the friendship deteriorate? If it was a relationship, a romantic relationship, did that end? Um, and they feel more comfortable coming forward about that now? These are things that we always need to look at with cold cases and the fact that while there may be obstacles because of lapse time, it can also make people more willing to talk. And that's one of the reasons why we have to keep going over these cases and keeping them in the limelight so that maybe someday somebody will hear something and say, now is the time I need to talk to somebody about this. And I really hope that that happens for Ms. Harmon and any cold case out there because every family deserves answers. But when I looked at her picture, one picture is of her holding a birthday cake. And there's another picture of her just sitting in a chair looking stylish and serene. And to know that she came to such a horrific end, it just makes me angry that no one has paid for that. She could be anybody's mother or grandmother or aunt. And to this point, no one's paid for that crime. I do have two more cases that um, really only have about the same amount of information as these first two did um, in regards to really not much at all. But again, that's one of the reasons to keep, um, you know, somebody's story out there is maybe one day it will you know, jog someone's memory. So the next case is of an elderly gentleman, gentleman named Pennock Polk. And this happened um, in 1987 on January 10th. Um, Mr. Polk was killed at his own home. His family had been trying to get in contact with him by phone, but when they were unable to do so, they contacted one of his neighbors. Um, they looked outside and saw the lights were on at his home. So at that point, family members did decide to come check on him. He lived on Eden Allen Road in Somerset County, Maryland. 
And when the family members got there, they were able to get into the home through an unlocked door, but no family member should ever have to see this. They found Mr. Polk deceased, and he had been both beaten and shot. So a man who lived 83 years came to an end when someone came into his home and it looked like robbery was the motive for the crime, took things that Mr. Polk had worked for and earned, and then took his life for no reason. There was no reason that anybody needed to do that. But they did. And that means, as this case has been unsolved, this person was out there and could have done this to other people. And he deserves to pay for the crime that he committed, even though it was so long ago. It doesn't take away the pain of Mr. Polk's family, of having to find that, of taking away any amount of time that Mr. Polk could have spent with his family and friends. So again, this goes back to January of 1987. If you did live in that area or knew Mr. Polk or have any information, um, please reach out to the Maryland State Police Homicide Unit. One other case that I want to touch on in Maryland, and this took place in Pocomoke, that's part of Worcester County, Maryland, and this was a Ms. Beatrice Wessels. And again, we are looking at someone who is in their 80s. She was 80 years old, and she passed away almost two years to the day as Mr. Polk. She died in January on the 7th, of 1989. She was stabbed to death. Yes, she was stabbed. So it was a violent act that took Ms. Wessel's life. Um, police responded when a family member, you know, so again, a family member found their loved one um, after they were attacked and killed. The police responded and there's no other information from that point. Um, the only addition is apparently there was someone who did live on the same property as Miss Wessels, but that's that. It just says they were a witness, but it doesn't provide anything that they may have not may or may not have seen at the time. So again, if you did live in that area or know someone who may have information, please reach out to the Maryland State Police Homicide Division. I'm going to leave um, links to both Maryland and the Newcastle County Police, um, you know, for information if you do um, have anything that you want to add. Um, I did look for some Virginia cold cases that took place on the Eastern Shore counties or the Delmarva counties of Virginia, but the information on those were even less. Um, there have been identified remains that have been located previously, but they were not complete remains and were in a very, a very advanced state of decomposition, sometimes just being skeletal remains um, and not all of the remains. So even the gender um, and time frame of when that person would have died are completely unknown. Um, just reviewing the ones in Maryland, I'm sorry, in Virginia, there's also um, looks like a possibility 
of of remains coming up from the shore, meaning someone who may have drowned. The remains may have been found of someone, um, you know, who did drown in the ocean and they're being um, brought to the shore. And, you know, in some parts of Maryland, it may be the same thing as well. And Delaware, but at least the cases that I looked at in Virginia, that seemed to be a possibility a little bit more than the cases they looked at in Delaware and Maryland. While reviewing all of these cases, plus, you know, the other cold cases that I have marked that I want to review, something's become apparent to me. And there was a saying I've heard just in passing over time, whether it's been on TV shows or, you know, more personally, that in death, everyone is equal. And while I get the intent beyond that or behind that, um, you know, meaning that once someone dies, you no longer have, you know, rich or poor, um, anything like that. And while, you know, on the surface, there could be differences such as um, the type of funeral service or the type of monument, whether it be a headstone or mausoleum, still the physical form after a person passes away, everyone is equal in death. At least that's what I feel the intent behind that saying is. But in reviewing these cases, it, it's just not the case. There are so many people who are left without their name. And I mean, that's just heartbreaking because your name is your identification. So when someone says your name, they can either have the fondest of memories or the worst. They could, you know, have the memories of, you know, growing up together, of going to parties together, of just spending good quality time with each other. And hearing a name may make you think about contributions that this person made on society. But when someone's left unidentified, they don't have the dignity of being remembered in an accurate way. Just looking at Marie Heiser's case, her children for so many years thought she had abandoned them. That brought them pain. And I'm sure they just didn't understand why she would have done that. So after years and years of searching with you know, police finally being able to give her her name back, it let her children know that she didn't just leave them, that she probably still loved them just as much as she always had but someone else took her away from them. So having her name back made the memories that her children had of her be more comforting. So for all those who are unidentified, it's important to give them back their name so that they are remembered with the same dignity and honor that everybody should have in death. And for those who, who have not had justice served, whose murderer has not been apprehended, families deserve the closure of knowing answers as to why somebody would do something like that to their family member. Not that it matters, because nobody deserves to die even one minute before they should. Nobody has the right to take even one breath away from a person. Yet, we looked at two cases where, well, three cases where 
people were killed for no reason. And we hope that after years and years that maybe their killers will be finally given the sentence that they deserve. So I'd like to thank everybody for listening today. Um, I do also just want to mention going forward, I am looking at starting a Patreon or um, you know, some, something like that because what I found, especially in these cases, is it might be advantageous to have um, access to things like newspapers.com or other archival services where you know, we might be able to find more information. Sometimes when, you know, I'm searching for older articles, they're either archived and I'd have to go to newspapers.com. Um, I have tried using the Google newspaper archives, but that's, that's really not as extensive as some of the other sources. Um, I've tried not to, you know, go to a paid site whenever possible. I did sign up for the Baltimore Sun not too long ago because they actually do have a lot of articles about events that took place on Delmarva. So, um, you know, they had a sale going on, so I did subscribe to that. But I do want to be able to have different resources available. Occasionally there are actually books um, about some cases that, um, you know, I'd like to cover, even though I'm trying to cover, you know, more cases that are not as well known. But I am, you know, thinking about that. Um, and if I do add that, I'll have that linked on or in the sources. Um, I'll go ahead and update that if I do decide to add that. It'll be under the sources and the contact information. Um, just because I want to be able to get as much information as possible. And, you know, looking at other cold cases um, going forward, maybe there'll be an article or two that provides a little more information than you know, just the two or three lines that are in some of these reports. I hope everybody found this episode informative in regards to especially um, things like the DNA and genealogical resources and research um, that, you know, is now available to try to help solve these cold cases. Um, if you have any suggestions as well on cases that you'd like me to cover, please email me or send me a message on Facebook. Honestly, Facebook is, um, Messenger is probably the quickest way um, to get to me because I have a another podcast too and I have different emails. So Facebook is is probably the quickest. But again, I appreciate everybody. I will talk to you again soon. I'm trying to get onto a every two week upload schedule. So, you know, I will do my very best to um, do that. Everybody, please have a nice rest of your weekend and I will talk to you again soon.